Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Rehab Inc. podcast. Today, we're going to be recapping and discussing the speaker series event, which focused on mental health. My name is Bernice, and I'm a second year physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Hi, and my name is Anna, and I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Toronto. I'm a person who stutters, so sometimes it might take me a little bit longer to speak. So this speaker series event took place in December 2019 as a part of a series of talks on rehabilitation, research, and clinical care. So this event focused on understanding the importance of mental health on well-being and clinical outcomes and ways to manage stress. So there are three main speakers, Dr. Andrea Iaboni, Lindsay Kudlow, and Anita Kaiser. Mental health is a topic that has been receiving lots of attention from the media, especially in today's times when we consider the effect of the pandemic at work, school, research, and our daily lives. Mental health is a forefront of conversation and a healthcare priority. So to get us started, we'll be discussing Lindsay Kudlow's talk. Dr. Lindsay Kudlow is a registered psychotherapist, counselor, and yoga or mindfulness instructor. And her talk was regarding burnout prevention, managing work-life balance, and prioritizing mental health, which are all topics I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, regardless if you're a student, working professional, or just someone trying to navigate life during a pandemic. So she introduces her talk with defining what burnout is. So before we go into that, Anna, what is your definition of burnout? Because mine was a little bit different than what she said, so I was kind of surprised. Well, I experience burnout a lot. And to me, I feel like it's that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you honestly just can't get out of bed. You likely have a to-do list that's super duper long, because I know I always do. But you just can't bring yourself to go and work on it, even though it's something that you are truly passionate about. But for some reason, maybe it's because you've been working on a project for like day in, day out, morning to night. You just can't do anything anymore. You don't have the time to spend to work out. And you're just kind of letting things play play out. At least that's how it's like for me. How about you, Bernice? Yeah, I think it was kind of similar. Um, like the whole feeling of being dissociated or kind of like autopiloting through your day. Yes. Yeah, like you're not really engaged. You don't, you're kind of just not present anymore. So Lindsay talks about differentiating burnout from stress, which I thought was really important because for me, I always kind of lumped the two together. I thought they're kind of the same thing. Um, but from her definition, she says that burnout is the result of prolonged stress. The stress may be due to taking on too much, so having that endless to-do list, doing more things than we think we can handle, not having enough downtime. Um, And then if we're kind of like stuck in this mental state for too long, that's what leads to burnout, which involves the feelings of feeling exhausted all the time and like disengaged and just not present with the tasks and the days that we're faced with. And definitely the feeling of like not feeling fulfillment even if it's something that we really wanted to do. And Lindsay elaborates further on those signs and symptoms, so we can hear what she has to say. So you can kind of break down those signs or symptoms into different components, right? There's physical, there's behavioral, there's emotional. Again, in terms of the physical, it's really those physical health symptoms that can start to show up. Changes in sleeping, diet, immunity, those feelings of exhaustion, 
behavioral, there can be a sense of withdrawing or isolating, maybe using substances or other coping strategies that are less healthy to, to cope. Um, can there can start to develop relationship challenges? So again, these are some of the signs and things just to be aware of. Sometimes we can find ourselves or clients or patients starting to slip into some of these behaviors or these patterns or mentioning some of these symptoms. And they're things just to kind of pay attention to, you know, what's going on? Does this have to do with a lack of work-life balance? Does it have to do with other elements of mental health that we can explore a little bit more? So I guess as a summary, what Lindsay is saying, um, she kind of differentiates between the two by saying stress is linked more to anxiety whereas burnout could be linked to depression, so kind of a more like chronic long-term thing. And her talk actually connects really well with a book that I'm reading right now called Burnout, Unlocking the Stress Cycle, and it's by Amelia and Emily Nagoski. And they kind of explain stress or any kind of emotion as a tunnel. So in order to feel better and finish the emotion or stress, if you will, is we have to enter the tunnel and then go through it and then exit. Um, So what happens with burnout is that we enter the tunnel, but then we get stuck in it. So we're never actually able to exit. And that's where that, um, that feeling of exhaustion can really happen. And then they also give us some tips about how to prevent burnout, which I'm sure we'd all love during this time of intensive work and COVID and everything. So personally, what I try and do is exercise. And also I try and connect with people as much as I can, just because it's shown that having that social interaction can really help uplift your mood. And is there anything else that you do? I'm pretty into the practice of meditation and mindfulness. Um, So I have an app that I use frequently to try to practice be present in the moment. Because I find that because I'm the type of person to always be thinking a lot, I think about the past, think about the future, what's coming up next, what should I do? And I'm just like planning, 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 um, that I really have to sit there. And I think mindfulness um, really helps center me in that way. And that's sort of something that I try to incorporate in my daily routines to take care of myself. And I'm a big fan of sleep. I am the type of person that can fall asleep anywhere at any time. (laughs) That's actually very good in terms of like sleep hygiene. Yeah, I um, get a lot of comments about the amount of alarms I have. My partner always makes fun of me because sometimes we would be playing a game or watching a show or taking a walk, trying to get some groceries and then I'll be quiet. And then somehow my phone will start ringing and it'll be, you know, time to work out or whatever it may be for the day. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? (laughs) Yeah, just a fun thing that I started doing recently is I set an alarm to be reflective and to practice gratitude. I learned about that in a webinar recently. 
definitely, yeah, all these activities are important for preventing burnout. And in the, in the stress cycle book, the reason why it can help to prevent burnout is because it kind of, it's like a signal to our body that the stressor or the negative emotion is like finished, like physically with our body, like just because we wrote an exam or something, brain doesn't compute the fact that the stressor is gone. Um, we're still kind of stuck in that stressed state. So doing this other activity, like the mindfulness or people who like journal or like exercise and stuff, it's like a switch to signal to yourself that, okay, like I'm okay, I can relax now, like dresser's not here anymore. So that's really important. Yes, for sure. I think especially during times of stress, it's important to take a step back. It could be a minute, it could be two minutes, three minutes, as long or as short as you need to just sit with the person you are right now and breathe. Mm -hmm. We always hear about self-care tasks being essentially like a structured activity of their own. Oh, it's going to be, it has to be like five minutes of meditation and then 15 minutes of journaling and then I'm going to do yoga. I think in that way, it does intimidate people to do it because it's like another thing to add to their to-do list. So it could become a barrier. Lindsay kind of emphasizes that it's important to focus on the individual and focus on really in that moment what you think you need and it doesn't have to be the same thing all the time so this is just the last piece here i'll share which is you know how to figure out what what it is that you need and, and when we're talking about like lack of balance or burnout mental health all of these things is so much related to our, our needs um so it's just being able to sit you know with ourselves or be with ourselves for long enough to figure out what is going on for me, right? How, what am I feeling or how am I feeling and what might I need in this moment, right? So in that whole list, 50 different ways to take care of ourselves, maybe in this moment I need to go outside or I need to call a friend and it, will, it can be different. So giving ourselves permission and that space to pay attention individually to what's going on, what we need, and then put that into plan. So she really emphasizes the idea of taking care of one's mental health. It can be like an unstructured thing, which I find quite liberating and I'm sure many other people will too. So as we kind of continue along looking at prevention and management of, of burnout, there are things, other things to keep in mind. Um, again, how do you take care of yourself? That's really the main question. And, and when I'm working with clients, that's, you know, I start there, right? I start with them. You know, it's really... I might have my own strategies um, that work for me, but we can assume that that will work for other people. Again, we do know that there are certain things like relaxation techniques, yoga, meditation. These things are known to be very calming, really good for us, reduce stress levels. But for some people, there are other things that they enjoy doing. And as long as it gives them that sense of kind of release or connection and it's not kind of causing a decline in their health in one way or another, then that's all welcome. So I think what she's saying is that waking up early and going running or sleeping until 11 or 12 p.m. can both be considered acts of self-care and it really just depends on what you need to do during that time, which I resonate with because on the weekend I slept until 12 for like three days straight. That sounds amazing. So Lindsay said a lot of insightful things about preventing burnout, but I think most people are aware of these tools. I think we've all heard about the importance of having social interactions, like exercising, mindfulness, gratitude. But why don't we do that 
especially sleep. How come if I'm done my work at 10 p.m., I don't go to bed automatically and I just kind of lay in my bed and degenerate for like two to three hours <laughs> like I, when I really could have been sleeping. You know, there's so many little things that we have to do in the night and you don't necessarily realize it until it's 11.30 p.m. and you have to go to work, you have to go to school at like 9 a.m. in the morning. But it's just so hard. Like I feel like we really need some time to just unwind or you know, just do absolutely nothing for a while before we can go back to our usual scheduled programming. Yeah, apparently that feeling of wanting to do nothing, even though we have so much extra time to like rejuvenate and sleep, apparently that's something called revenge bedtime procrastination. So they talk about it in this article called psychologists are trying to figure out why we don't go to sleep even when we want to. It's not because we're just lazy people. Apparently your mind needs that time to not exert willpower. So throughout the entire day, we're always like exerting willpower, doing things that we have to do, like work, school. When we get home, we have to cook, clean, and all that stuff. Um, so what our brain really wants to do at the end of the day is not have to make any of those those decisions, not having to use that discipline and force ourselves to do things that we know are good. So it's just a really good way to let ourselves unwind. Anyone who's listening, make sure you don't feel guilty when you do need that two to three hours if you just spend scrolling through your phone or kind of just watching random videos on YouTube. It's totally normal. That's really reassuring because I can confidently say that I am that person that needs like three two three hours to just do nothing watch you know cat and dog videos sometimes scroll through social media whatever it may be and it's nice to just consume media and not have to take action yeah consuming without taking action i like that <laughs> it sounds good all right, so that kind of concludes Lindsay's talk. It was really eye-opening learning about tactics to prevent burnout, but also having that article in there, it puts everything into perspective that we don't have to be perfect at self-care activities. It really is dependent on each individual and what they feel that they need in that moment. And the whole idea of revenge bedtime procrastination, it definitely serves a psychological purpose for us to unwind. So don't feel guilty if you just need to be a blob in your bed on the couch. It's all part of the self-care and preventing burnout process. The second presenter at Speaker Series event was Dr. Andrea Iboni, who is a geriatric psychiatrist researcher at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, working with patients living with dementia and improving technology uptake in the population. Dr. Iboni brings to the scene the way that clinicians may think about patients' response to treatment according to their motivation and engagement. So instead of asking, how can we motivate patients? It would be, how can I better engage the patient? So Bernice, I know you have completed some placements. What is your take on this? Have you ever felt the same way? Yeah, that's actually a really good topic to bring up, especially for anyone working in the clinical field. Um, I definitely felt the same way. A lot of what we learn at school is also how to instigate like behavior change because in physio, exercise might not be something that the patient or client is used to incorporating in their lives. So just like having to get them to understand the value of it or even the importance of incorporating just a little bit in their daily lives, that's 
kind of difficult if someone hasn't done it before. So it can be easy to write off patients. Oh, they just don't adhere to the plan because they're just like unmotivated to do like complete the exercises. So we do that a lot instead of just kind of asking ourselves like what could we have done different instead of what's going on? Like why aren't they just following our plan? That's been my experience so far. I haven't done any placements in like private practice yet where I can see this becoming more of an issue, but that's going to be in the future. So I'm glad we're having this talk now. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and I think you've proposed some very interesting points because the difference between the two is that motivation to a lot of clinicians seems to be an inherent trait while engagement, as Dr. Iboni puts it, is more under the patient's control. And she says this really lovely quote. So motivation is defined as willingness or enthusiasm for doing something. And so that there is an element there of drive, of interest, of, you know, um, the problem with the idea of motivation is that it's very much dependent on what you're seeing, that you're making a, dis like a call based on the person's behavior in that moment. So this is a motivated patient because they look like they're trying hard, and this is an unmotivated patient because they look like they're not trying so hard. And so the, there's actually motivation in many ways in this study that was done in 2002 when they asked a whole bunch of clinicians about this. There was something that was thought was very intrinsic in the patient about motivation. Like they were a motivated person or they are an unmotivated, like it's a trait in some way of their personality. And that this is actually um, problematic because it can be quite negative therapeutically. So if you hear from your colleague, oh yeah, Mr. Smith, he's really unmotivated. That obviously influences in a way what you think about this person and their likelihood of participating actively in the therapy you're about to do with them. Um, and so actually, I'm, even though I start off talking about motivation, in part because it's the way we think about this most commonly, I'm actually going to introduce the term engagement to you now because I think engagement is a much better way of thinking about this. And so engagement is the state of being involved or committed in a task or in an activity or a goal. Um, and what's great about engagement versus motivation is that it's not meant to be inherent traits. It's actually a state. You can move from being engaged to unengaged quite quickly. So this really does free up how we can position ourselves to better support patients in the clinic from a mental health perspective and really introduces this idea of coping and the fact that engagement is more of a fluid type of state. And for clinicians, we don't see the entire picture. I'm not sure if you noticed this in your experiences, Bernice. Oh yeah, like 100%. I think even us as individuals, throughout the day we have different feelings and emotions. So mm -hmm. how could I expect our patients or clients that we're seeing for just like maybe like half an hour to an hour of like this whole day how can I expect that one moment for them to be like totally engaged or like totally motivated in what we're doing whereas there's all this other stuff happening in their lives um, so it's definitely something that I've had to learn and just be more cognizant of whenever I'm talking to people because that they might just be having like a bad hour in their day and we can't really generalize that to who they are as a person or how they'll perform later on in their and rehab that's program. such a good point that you've um, brought up, Bernice, as an example, because oftentimes I walk into a room and kind of notice how a person is responding to my uh, general questions like, how are you doing today? Because that can often give yeah. you a sense of what someone is feeling in a certain day, and that can help guide you in to figuring out what might be going on in someone's day. 
when you realize that their behavior may be a result of how they're coping with the condition or life in general, rather than how receptive someone may be in treatment, that can really make a difference in treatment outcomes. And this change in thinking really does highlight the significant implications on rehabilitation care and the level of work that clinicians do on a day-to-day basis to try to stay in tune with the status of the person. And as Dr. Iboni puts it, it's about behavior change fundamentally. And it's one thing to know that doing this is good for you, doing exercise is good for you. It's another thing to actually do exercise. And so this is why I think this is really important. Like, so as a doctor, you can't sit in front of your patient and say, do this, this, and this goodbye. You have to give people the behavior change tools that they need to actually do this, this, and this. And then, then the continuity is within the, the person is empowered to do that continuity themselves, right? So this is what is really important for you to be able to sustain this um, benefit that you've had. This is what you need to be able to achieve your goals. And how am I going to help you do this? and what kind of behavior changes are necessary. People say that 99% of medicine is behavior change, and I think that that like that's probably true, right? How do you get people to stop smoking? How do you get people to eat healthy? How do you... Um, and so so that's why like some of these techniques and these um, uh, behavior change strategies are really worth learning. Like They're not part of the curriculum, but if you really want to affect a change in your clients and your patients, then you, you have to know how to help them make changes. Dr. Iboni discusses three really relevant principles where we have the patient be the boss and we really do try to link every activity we have to a goal and try to optimize the intensity of this therapy. Have you ever tried using similar types of principles, Bernice, in your practice? The ones that I consciously try to do is definitely like linking it to their personal goals. So like a lot of the times in the placement that I just had back in like winter, fall, I was in acute care. So in the hospital. So obviously like the overarching goal for everyone is like, okay, like the goal is to get you home. But that's not really what their actual goal is. Maybe their goal is to go play golf when they go home, like not necessarily just the act of arriving into their house. So it's really about like trying to get to know the person and figure out what's important to them, which is something that they also do hammer into us in class. But obviously it makes a lot more sense when you see it in person. So yes, I agree with her three principles there. Yes, definitely. I would like to spend some time discussing this thought. So when we imagine ourselves sailing through a sea of unknown. Um, we want to try to control what's happening in our situation in different ways. So this is how the idea of coping comes in. And coping will differ depending on how you're feeling about a situation. So when we picture it in the context of mental health, these changes that are happening on a day-to-day basis is kind of like the weather. Um, sometimes it will be sunny, Sometimes it will be windy with rain or even hail, perhaps. And how we deal with um, and and cope with these changes in the weather will impact how people can perceive our behaviors at a certain time. So again, bring it back to patients. Patients aim to control their situation by engaging more or engaging less in a specific type of activity. For clinicians who are also a part of this picture, they control the situation through goal setting. So given their 
perception that may involve trying to motivate someone and that's not successful, they can then try to move forward in the goals through goal setting. And for our patients who are possibly losing control in different parts of their lives, such as loss of functioning, loss of relationships, and so on, patient can approach it in two different ways. So they can approach it through a problem-based or a task-oriented type of coping where they try to solve and restructure the problem. Whereas someone who may be using more of an avoidance-based type of coping approach, someone might disengage mentally by not paying attention or disengage behaviorally by not participating. Bernice, I'm not sure if you notice these types of coping behaviors while you were in the clinic. I think I probably noticed it as we're working with them. Like if we notice if they're like avoidance-based or problem-based, it could also lead to kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I noticed that sometimes if the patient is not as engaged with what I'm doing, then it kind of affects my own mood. And then I'm kind of like less engaged with the session that I'm having with them. So it's kind of turns into this vortex or cycle. And then we're not building them up anymore. We're just kind of like going around in circles. Like they're not participating. So it makes me feel like I'm going to put less effort into it. As terrible as that sounds, that should not be happening at all. Um, but that is something that I noticed that can easily happen. Um, so that's something that I've tried to learn to be more aware of. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the dangers of the of the concept of motivation in thinking, right? I think the conversation that we really need to have with patients is to talk about what's important to them and also figure out what's happening in their lives. As Dr. Iboni puts it, people become engaged and disengaged, and that really falls down to coping. So how they are coping with any given situation can really influence how healthcare providers respond to their behaviors. And so with that said, how can we better support our patients? We have to start by thinking about how to improve their coping skills by talking about stress management, talking about relaxation therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and etc. There has been research to show that by focusing more on changing the behaviors of therapists, the research found that they were able to increase patient engagement. Yeah, it's interesting having a study for that. Yeah, just because when I think of it or if I apply it to my own life, that totally makes sense. Like if you were to ask me to do something and I didn't see it as valuable or applicable to my life, I'd be definitely less engaged to what you're asking me to do. Yeah, definitely. It really does help to put things in perspective. And I think what we hope that listeners can take away from this is to think about your mental state currently and work towards improving your coping skills in the way that Dr. Lindsay Kudlow discussed previously. By developing all these problem-based coping strategies, the hope is that you can better manage stresses in your daily lives and better optimize your ability to engage with different activities.
So to finish off this episode, the third speaker that we had at Speaker Series was Anita Kaiser, a PhD student and person with lived experience who is sharing her insights about the importance of hope after a spinal cord injury. Spinal cord injuries can often happen suddenly and can have devastating, life-changing physical consequences that can affect emotional and social well-being. And Anita shares with us a personal story about her own spinal cord injury experiences. Let's have a listen. So I want to start by telling you all a story. And as I tell the story, I want you to put yourself in this person's shoes and imagine that it's you going through this. So imagine that you're in your 20s. For some of you, you probably still are. Um, and you just graduated from university. And you managed to get your first full-time job. And it was summertime now. So when you're not working, you're out camping and rollerblading and going out dancing and just hanging out with your friends and having a good time. And then September rolls around and you decide one weekend to take a road trip up north with your sister and visit some friends for the weekend. And you go up and you have a great weekend and, you know, it flies by and before you know it, it's Sunday and it's time to pack up and head back home. And as you're partway into your journey uh, along the road, your uh, sister pulls up behind a slow-moving truck and decides to overtake it. But as she's in the middle of changing lanes, the front tire blows and loses control of the car. And she zigzags across the highway and goes off the left shoulder and rolls five times down the hill into a ditch. You pass out when the car starts to roll, but you wake up when it stops. And your first reaction, you realize that you have an aching pain in your neck and you realize that you can't move. And your first reaction is, oh my God, I think I broke both of my arms and legs. And then your second reaction is this huge sigh of relief as you think, wow, thank God it doesn't hurt. It doesn't occur to you that it's anything worse than that. And it's not until you get airlifted to the hospital and the doctors there do all of their tests, MRIs and CAT scans and x-rays before the doctor that's in charge comes up to you and tells you that you broke your neck and you're never going to walk again. Just like that. So I want you to take a moment and think about it and think about what those words would mean to you, how you would react to them, how it would make you feel. Okay, now hold on to that while you, I walk you through some stats. So as Anita said, hearing such words can be shocking and memorable, and it affects your outlook on the rest of your life. But Anita suggests that there are actions you can take to improve your well-being, even if you can't be cured completely. Hope allows a person to be motivated to improve their condition and be confident in their ability to succeed at it. And I think that definitely resonates with me as well. So as someone who's stuttered all my life, I've heard a mix of opinions, especially when I first started to pursue a career in speech language pathology. I was met with opinions that was very against my uh, dream and my passion because who would want a speech therapist that has a speech impediment herself? And that's something that has a concern that was brought up by a lot of clinicians in the field. And that was very disheartening to hear when someone feels unconfident in your abilities just because of how you speak. I think that really impacted how I felt about 
speech language pathology as a field and as a career. But on the flip side, there are also people that told me the opposite. So I heard from researchers, clinicians, and clients and patients alike that my experiences as someone with a communication disorder is is something that's 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 very valuable because I bring to my sessions that implicit understanding of communication challenges and frustrations that a lot of speech language pathologists don't have just has something that they haven't experienced. So there's always two sides of the story. And I think that empowered me to think of the impact that words can have. And that is something important to consider. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story, Anna. I was actually surprised when you mentioned that people in the field, so like actual speech language pathologists, they didn't think it'd be a good idea for you to pursue it. Um, Just because I can't think of many other healthcare professionals where, for example, like if you had a, a doctor who is also living with some sort of chronic condition, I don't think like other people would tell them to not be a doctor because like they themselves are are living with a certain condition. So that really surprised me. But I'm glad you decided not to listen to them and went after being an SLP anyways, because I think you having that experience definitely adds to like building that patient rapport and really being able to connect with other people, which is like the groundwork for all of care. So building up on Dr. Ayaboni's talk, Anita mentions that people can generally be categorized into three categories. So either optimists, so your glass half full people, neutral or pessimists, so your glass half empty people, which all influence their uh, motivation. So I guess their motivation to participate based on personality traits. So specifically, how can we use our words to instill hope to improve clinical outcomes? And it wasn't until about five or six years ago where I was introduced to a novel form of treatment and therapy. And all of a sudden I had therapists around me telling me, no, there's an opportunity, there's a possibility. You know, we don't know what the future is going to hold, but there's a possibility of getting some sort of recovery. So all of a sudden now I wasn't, you know, this lone person on an island waving my little tiny flag of hope. I had other people with me supporting me. And um, that was really empowering is to hear from other people, credible people, that there's an opportunity to improve. You know, there's, there's therapies and treatments and things that are out there that can help you. And so all of a sudden now, I was given permission to try. And it's interesting because back in the early days, I would try for a little bit to see if I could wiggle my toe or move my leg or something. And I would get these strong electrical vibrations running through my legs. But then I would get that message in my head, but you're not going to walk again. So I'd give up. I'd stop. She also talks about how we have this fear of giving people false hope. Like we never want to promise them something that might not happen. Um, so we'd rather them have very low expectations and be pleasantly surprised if something better happens rather than starting off on like a higher, a more positive mental state of having this hope and then be disappointed later. Well, I think in medicine, we seem to have this fear of giving our patients false hope. We're afraid that if we tell them something that doesn't end up being true, they're gonna get upset and come back and blame us. So what we do instead 
is we give them the worst case scenario, thinking that if they improve, well, it's an unexpected surprise for them and then everyone's happy, right? I don't think that's the case. I think, um, I think that what happens is by us avoiding trying to give false hope, what we in inadvertently end up doing is giving no hope. And it really sets our patients up for failure right from the get-go. And it has a ripple effect right into rehab because it translates into their therapy program, the, the, the type of treatments um, and therapies that they're provided and the equipment that they're permitted to use. So basically by being comfortable with saying, I don't know, and being transparent about the possible outcomes is important. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. Even if we don't know what can happen, like the importance of just being honest and having that opportunity to at least try. So just really saying like, I don't know, but we can try to work towards this and just focusing on just the small little goals in front of us. So maybe not um, like going back to playing like a sport or something, but maybe today we'll focus on trying to stand up. Um, but just having that can really impact not only how they feel physically, but mentally. So that's ultimately what we want to focus on as healthcare practitioners and researchers. And as people in general, it's all about those tiny baby steps that will show progress five, 10 years from now. I think the take home point of her talk was basically just to tell people we should be giving them not false hope, but realistic hope. And knowing the difference between the two is very important. And this concludes our mental health speaker series event recap episode. Thank you for listening and please subscribe, like, and follow us on our social media. You can find the Rehabbing Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, or on our website, rehabingmag.com slash podcast. That's R-E-H-A-B-I-N-K-M-A-G dot com slash podcast. Tune in next time.